0: It's a joy to be in the Word today. Of course, as we break the Word, it's just part of what we do as saints. Giving and praying and worshiping are all parts of the lives of saints. And so we just follow uh, in their very noteworthy steps and do that today for us. It's a joy then to turn to 1 Corinthians. We're picking up today where we left off last Sunday. We're in a verse-by-verse study uh, through the book of first and books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. We've titled it. God's plan for a healthy church, in particular, this particular passage, God's wisdom on display. I'd like you to pick up in verse 22. We're going to read all the way through the end of the chapter. So 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22, and we'll go all the way through verse 31. So I'm going to read from my open Bible. Um, I'll be reading from the New American Standard. You can find that in the chair in front of you or read with your own version, and I'll give you verse cues. We'll stay together. Look at verse 22. For indeed, for indeed, the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks search for wisdom. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Verse 24, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wider than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Verse 26, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Verse 28, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. Verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. Verse 30, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul's general topic, as you know if you've been with us, as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, is the health of the church. In specific, uh, he is addressing what should be a wonderful trademark of the church, and that's unity. He is doing that, uh, really, and as he's doing this, he's really addressing some problems with division. Uh, The church uh, of Corinth had allowed themselves to be pulled into different divisions, and we've looked at some of that, and we'll just briefly review that in just a second. And what we saw was openly voicing differing viewpoints, differing uh, preferences, hanging on to an unsubmissive spirit, Uh, all those things, of course, part of a division that Paul was addressing as he desires for the church to be healthy in unity. To return to the unity that's so integral to effective ministry, Paul tells them, as we saw earlier, do not allow schisms to remain inside the church, he said. Uh, be made complete or be repaired uh, from the brokenness of division. He says, uh, because of old sinful habits, die hard. He tells them what to do in place of that. Uh, the outward, uh, tells them to uh, outwardly voice the same thing, come to the same conclusions, be of the same mind, he says. Uh, And you'll find in Pauline teaching, and we looked at it certainly as we went through the book of Romans, that he always gives opportunity for a change of behavior. Remember Romans 6.19, in particular, Paul says, as he talks about uh, the new man, he says, "...present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification." And as it relates here to the Corinthians, remember, it's the mind, the habits, the responses, all those things are addressed and begin to be exchanged for righteous thoughts, habits, and responses. So Paul says, look, don't let there be any division among you. Don't allow any schisms to remain. Then he says, be made complete uh, and, and uh, speak the same thing in the outwards. Say that th- come to the same conclusion in the inward, uh, be of one mind. And so he sets them then on the right track in this issue of division. And then Paul gives the ultimate reason why there should be no division when he says in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 1, he says, has Christ been divided? Paul wasn't crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now it's important to note that Paul doesn't pick up on the issues that were involved. He doesn't address what somebody was saying about something else or what one person said about some other teacher or whatever, okay? And he uses himself as an example so nobody would say, well, Paul jumped on the side of Apollos or Paul jumped on the side of Cephas or whatever, Paul just says, listen, Christ isn't divided. Paul wasn't crucified for you, so he uses himself. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So the issue is Christ isn't divided. And everything that goes on in the church, we saw, reflects on the Lord. Divisions, uh, preferential opinions expressed in opposition are always driven by people. People do those things. So Paul says, listen, put the name of whoever it is causing the division in that sentence. Blank wasn't crucified for you, was he? Were you baptized in the name of? And then fill in the sentence with that person's name. And when that happens, it sounds bad, doesn't it? As bad as it really is, because Christ isn't divided. So he says, listen, that's the way you approach that. Now last time we were together, Paul called them to understand that they're unified in Christ, and what they uh, should know centers around the cross. Look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, Paul says, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void, Paul says. And we saw that that noun cleverness has to do with human wisdom or worldly wisdom. And he, that sets up really what he's going to say next. He sets human wisdom against the cross. Paul looks at the church. He knows everybody has an opinion there in Corinth. Everybody thinks they know something. Everybody's talking out loud in opposition. Everybody's talking inside in opposition. Everybody's coming to different conclusions. And so he's going to set that kind of carnal thinking on its ear for a few minutes. He says, Listen, I came to preach the gospel, not in Seville Logo, not in word wisdom, he said. Uh, I came to preach the gospel not in human wisdom. And so Paul with verse 17 really launches then into a really lengthy contrast between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man. And it's actually the foolishness of men which they think is wisdom. That's really where it gets down to. The foolishness of men which they think is wisdom and the wisdom of God which men think is foolishness. And that really is what it comes down to. It contrasts human wisdom with divine wisdom. And the reason why Paul does that is that his admonitions ultimately have to do with boasting. Because somebody say, well, why do you contrast worldly wisdom and, and, uh, and heavenly wisdom and all that? Well, when he's, ta- when he's talking about the Corinthians church, he's really talking about boasting is what he's talking about. Because what they were doing was boasting of one teacher over another, or one situation over another, or one situation was uh, better than some other situation. What I did in, in this other church with Peter was better than what's going on with Apollos or whatever, Okay. And remember, I told you, it wasn't necessarily the divisions here that were the issue. The issue was that there were divisions. Not that these particular examples that Paul gives are the only specific case. So they're a proud group. All the factions thought they were right. All the factions were saying what they wanted to say. All the factions weren't submitting. And so Paul shows them what God thinks about man's wisdom. Now look at verse 18, if you would. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing... But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Verse 19, for it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I'll set aside. Verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message priest to save those who believe. Now we looked at all that last time. And Paul gives them the first reason why they're to avoid faction and division, because that's what it all comes back to. And as I told you last week, there are so many applications in this section of Scripture that we could never get to all of them. I'm going to get to the ones that I think that we can cover, You keep reading and cross-referencing and you'll cover the ones that you have questions about. I mean, when you come back to, uh, you know, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. There's so many applications to that, even this week as we just watched the news. But the the fact of the matter is, uh, Paul gives them the first reason there to avoid factions and division. And that's the worldly wisdom that promotes faction and division is going to all be swept away by God. That's the bottom line. As it comes back to whatever worldly wisdom has made its way into the church, whatever faction, whatever divisions, whatever men think, all that's going to be swept away by the Lord. And we go on to see from Paul's illustration through verse 21 that God never needed human wisdom in the past, and he doesn't need it now because he quotes Isaiah and then he moves forward into the present and we saw all of that. Look at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. Now it wasn't preaching we saw. Preaching isn't in itself foolish. It's the fact that from the world's perspective, what's being said is foolishness. So Paul uses it in that case. And this is really our next point. And Paul makes here uh, to turn men away from their own preferences and factions and divisions. So secondly, the wisdom of man is powerless. The wisdom of man is powerless. and You can find that in your notes. The second problem with man's wisdom and man's preferences and man's factions and disagreement as he looks at this Corinthian church is that it's sometimes nice to sit around and talk about it. Wisdom, you know, man's wisdom, factions, preferences, personal preferences, oppositions, whatever. Sometimes that's nice to sit around and talk about. People like to do that, okay? It gives people some intellectual satisfaction. They think they can pair out some certain thing. They They can certainly discern what the problem really is. And so there's some interaction there. But here's the thing Paul says. All that stuff can't do anything, really. People don't get changed lives from it. It doesn't transform people. It doesn't forgive sin. It doesn't meet need. It doesn't cre- you know, make new creatures. It doesn't disciple. It doesn't usher people into the presence of God. All that stuff doesn't do anything like that. In fact, Paul says, it takes the church away from all of that. The wisdom of man is powerless to accomplish what, in man's opinion, the foolishness of God accomplished. That's the issue. Because it says, through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who figured it all out to work it all out and, and come to the right conclusion, all the smartest people? No. To those who believe, Paul says. All he needs is the message of the cross, preached, and those that believe are saved and follow the biblical pattern of the church and fervently serve, saying the same thing, coming to the same conclusion, being of one mind. That's what Paul says the church is supposed to look like. That's what the power is. And without that, it sucks away the testimony and the power of the foundation of the church. Now. We covered a lot of other things last time. We can't go back on that today. So if you missed that, you can catch up online. All right, let's move on to our new stuff. So as Paul's used by the Lord to address the issue of unity in the church in order to bring the church to health, the Holy Spirit then brings Paul along to let the Corinthian church know they didn't need to drag into the assembly of believers all the wisdom of man. All it will do is corrupt and divide, and that is, in fact, precisely what it had done. And incidentally, it also had contributed as well, as we will see as we work our way through the book, to most all of the rest of the problems that we find in the book of Corinthians and in the Corinthian assembly. Worldly philosophy, worldly morality, worldly concepts, worldly problem solving, all those kinds of things, all men's opinions, all brought into the church that Paul has to deal with on a, on a step-by-step basis. And I gave that to you as we went through really the overview of the book a couple of weeks ago. Now, so wisdom of man is powerless, and he reiterates that same thought in the verses that follow, verses 22 to 25 where the wisdom of man is powerless and the wisdom of God is powerful. So look at verse 22, if you would. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, verse 24. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 25 because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's stop right there, look at verse 22 again. For indeed, it says, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. Now notice this, as you look at that little section, he says here, here we are in the world and we're preaching this simple message of the cross, God in human flesh comes into the world, He, he lives, he does miracles, he proves himself to be God, dies on the cross, sheds his blood, bears the punishment for our sin, Rises from the dead, Paul says. We keep preaching this message, and we keep telling telling people this is the apex of all of history. This is the theme of the universe. This is salvation of men. This is the wisdom of God. This is key for the church, the main thing. But the Jews, he says, ask for signs. Now, just as a footnote, and I want to draw this as a parallel here because we saw this earlier. The two illustrations he's going to use here are important. He's going to use the Jews and the Greeks, okay? And they're true, and they describe two groups. But I don't think that's the only application or even the main emphasis any more than Paul saying Paul, Apollo, Cephas, Christ were the main emphasis. Okay? They were the illustrations, just like Paul when he talks about freedom, talks about eating or whatever. Okay? Those are illustrations. They are important, specifically in context to the church. But I don't think they're the main thing, uh, just like we saw earlier. You know, those two factions. Paul didn't bring up the differences that were causing the problems. The emphasis that was that there were differences and preferences being voiced in opposition, and that was the problem. And with that illustration, so it is with this one. Yes, the shortfalls of the Jews and Greeks are important, but the main emphasis is they were distracted by something else other than the message of the cross. That's the main thing, okay? So keep that in mind. Everything comes back to divisions and factions in the church that Paul's addressing in this Corinthian church. So, just like there were divisions and factions between Paul and Apollos and Cephas and, and those who were of Christ, and they all got in a big argument about who was of who, and voicing their own opinion, and being in opposition, and whatever. And those were important, but that wasn't the main thing. The main thing is that there were divisions, because Christ isn't divided. The same thing here, as we go through this little section with Jews and Greeks. Okay? The main emphasis uh, is that they're distracted by something else, that other than the message of the cross, that's the main thing. Something else drew them off track from the simplicity of the message of the cross, and that's what was happening in this Corinthian church. Their differences and preferences and factions drew them away from the main focus. That's the danger, isn't it? So keep that in mind as we look at the passage, and and, stay, and we'll stay together kind of in a cohesive unit for you in your mind as you understand what Paul's trying to get to. Look at verse 22. For indeed, the Jews ask for signs. Now, here's the problem with a Jew, okay? And we'll look at the individual problem in context and understand the greater problem, which is, just about anything draws people, draws the church off track from the main thing. And when it's drawn off track from the main thing, the power is gone from its testimony and its ability to bear fruit. The problem with the Jew, okay, they had to have a supernatural proof of everything. Everything. That was characteristic of them. Their constant demand is that, you know, like we see in John 6 27. Let's, uh, let me leave that right there. I skipped that slide, but I want you to make sure you get that down. They're distracted by something else other than the message of the cross. It's important as we remember that at the shortfalls of these Jews and Greeks is that it's just a distraction, okay? takes us away from the main thing. takes the church away from the main thing. Anytime there's factions, whatever it is, uh, fascinated by some other thing, getting involved with something that doesn't have to do with the message of the cross, that's always a problem for the church. Now, when, Jews ask, when the Jews ask for signs, that's always the, the main problem. John 6:27. this is what we see here. This is so typical, I think, of what Paul's illustrations would be. He says, uh, Jesus is speaking, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Uh, therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may, be, we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so they said to him, What then do you do for a sign, so that they may see and believe you? What work do you perform? All right. First of all, he draws them back to the main thing. Okay, Uh, and then they say, "Okay, well, if we're going to believe you, do a trick, Um, do something really super magic, so we can we can know that you're speaking the truth." Uh, But he did his miracles really for his disciples, because miracles really only solidify the faith of people who already believe. It was a judgment to the Jew, the miracles, of course. But people who don't believe will find a way to explain all those miracles away. And if you think about John nine. It's a perfect illustration as the Bible explains the Bible. You get the man born blind, right? And if you read chapter nine, I mean it takes the whole chapter, and the Pharisees, by the time the whole chapter's finished, they've run around researching the whole thing. So here's a man born blind, Jesus heals him, they're running around trying to figure out the whole thing, right? They're still convinced the guy wasn't really made to see, or this is somebody else. And in fact, they say, oh, it's, this is somebody different. This isn't that guy. And so uh, they finally go to him and and and, uh, and say, no, wait a minute. Are you the guy? And he says, I'm the guy. And, and then he, I don't believe you. So they go find his mom and dad. And uh, is this your son who was born blind? Yeah, yeah, this is the guy. He was born blind. That's our son. Well, what happened to him? Well, I don't know what happened to him. And they then you know, they say to the man, well, well, who's this person? He can't be somebody from God. And, of course, the man born blind, he says, you know, um, you're telling me that? I mean, you know he's opened my eyes and you're asking me whether he's from God. So the idea there, he showed him a pretty obvious sign. I mean, here's a man born blind, and he's been, uh, his eyes see. And at the end of it all was just antagonism and hatred towards Christ, see? Jesus did miracles in front of the disciples who already believed in order to show them his power and increase their faith. One more, just Matthew 16, 1-4. Here's a great example of the, of the whole problem with the Jew and, and just getting drawn off track, they need a sign. Pharisees and Sadducees came up uh, testing Jesus and they even asked him to show them a sign from heaven, verse two, but he replied to them, when it is evening you say, I'll, it'll be fair weather for the sky's red and in the morning uh, there will be a storm today for the sky is, is red and threatening. Um, Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? Verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. Which just meant uh, that Jesus would die in three days in the grave and and rise, and so that he wanted them to connect that. And when he rose from the dead, you know what they did? They, They bribed the soldiers to say they stole the body, and he didn't really rise. See? Uh, that's how blind they were. They didn't want to believe. It's always something other than the message of the cross, always something other. So the Jews required a sign. Now the Greeks uh, were different. Look at the last part of verse 22. The Greeks searched for wisdom. They sought wisdom. The Greeks were so in love with their own intellect that that's all they really cared about, uh, always chasing after uh, this piece of information or that piece of information or picking apart some other person's intellect. A great example, Acts 17, a wonderful example of Paul in Athens, Uh, Paul is there. He is reasoning. We know he's there right before he goes to Corinth. So we've looked at this temporarily uh, back at the early part of the introduction to the book. But Acts 17, it says, so he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. Verse 18, and also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, uh, what would this idle babbler, this is how they refer to Paul, an idle babbler. That's a word for seed picker. And so their, their reference to him was, was to a crow or a jay go along in the field after sowing, hop around, eat up the loose grain. And this context, this, this uh, particular for Paul, is that he's, they're classifying Paul as some wannabe philosopher hopping around from one philosopher to another, just kind of picking up the loose information, disconnected tidbits, you know, trying to make himself look smart, not, not very flattering to Paul. So he says, uh, they said, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Uh, Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of some strange deity because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So he's preaching the simple message, isn't he? Jesus and the resurrection. It's always something else, though. They need wisdom, don't they? Now, verse 19, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you're bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. And now, and then this parenthetical statement here at the end, it says, now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Great, great way to spend your time. So typical of what the Greek was like, and Paul uses it as an illustration. So in love with their own intellect, that's all they really cared about. And so he says here, we have these two kinds of people, and of course there are many other kinds, but these suffice to make the point, okay? And they're the most well-known, so they make the point for Paul. And then we come to verse 23 but he says, we preach Christ crucified. That's the reset button. The main thing is that the Messiah died on the cross. That's the gospel, we preach Christ crucified. That was what Paul was doing uh, at the Areopagus. That's what Paul was doing in front of the Jews, preaching the message of the cross. And so uh, we see that Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, the simple message. Get away from the things that steer you away from the main thing. Uh, By the shedding of his blood, he paid the penalty for sin. Uh, Sin is forgiven. The purpose for which man was made is restored. The work of sanctification has begun. All the marvelous parts of this salvation he is adopted into the family of God. He's made co-heirs with Christ. He can dwell with God forever. All the wonderful symptoms of being made right with the Lord through faith. That's the main thing. We say that, Paul says, to the Jews and to the Greeks, and they don't believe us. To the Jews, he says, a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. We say that to the Jews and they say, I don't believe it. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pay attention to that. We, well, you say, Israel, you know, I, we have an announcement to make. Uh, you see that person hanging on the cross bleeding? That's your Messiah. And they say, are you kidding? No way. One of the biggest problems the Jews have and continue to have over the Messiahship of Jesus Christ is his death. In their minds, the Messiah is gonna come. He's gonna set up his kingdom. And he did establish his kingdom, didn't he, in the hearts of believers. But that's not what they were uh, thinking about. They were thinking deliverance from the Roman kingdom. And you see, Scripture predicted the Messiah would die, so the Messiah is on a cross, and they go back to Deuteronomy 21, 23, and and they say this, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, verse 23, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who hanged is accursed of God, and so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God gave you as an inheritance. So they look at that, he who hanged on a tree is is, uh, accursed of God, so the Jews say he's hanging on a cross, he's accursed of God, he can't be the Messiah, so they stumble over that. And for them, the cross doesn't prove the Messiah, that he's the Messiah. It proves that he isn't the Messiah for the Jew. He didn't even throw off Rome. He didn't set up his kingdom. Ridiculous. And so now, you know, so now many Jews have abandoned this whole idea for the most part of a Messiah. They just talk about the Messianic era. That's where we are in the modern era, just the Messianic era, with some kind of great society or whatever, and no uh, physical Messiah. And that's going to begin with the rebuilding of the Temple Mount. A Happy time, a peace time in the world. Uh, there might not even be a personal Messiah for many Jews. So some have given up on it because they've been waiting too long. Well, they're never going to see another one, are they? He's already been here, and they wanted signs, and when he did the signs, it only ended up bringing judgment on them. They expected kind of a Joel 2 type of Jesus. They wanted the whole glorious appearing of Christ to happen before the atonement of sin happened. They expected him to do all kinds of supernatural wonders and, and for things to happen when he set up his kingdom and instead he comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, humble and ordinary, and for a day or two it's Hosanna, Hosanna. But boy, that went fast, didn't it? John 12, 23. Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain falls, of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And they're like, whoa, 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 what? Whoa. The crowd then answered him, We've heard uh, of the law, that Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? You See? Uh, they didn't understand that, did they? And about that time they bailed out, and by the time Friday came, they're, they're screaming for his blood, right? This couldn't be the Messiah. Where are the wonders? Where are the signs? Where are the kingdom? And then it says, And the Gentiles... And to the Gentiles, this message of the cross, Christ crucified is foolishness. Uh, To the Greeks, the whole idea was foolishness. For God to come and to suffer and be afflicted by human situation and human trouble was foreign to the Greek. They believed the pantheon of gods, with the exception of perhaps Prometheus, was basically indifferent to human suffering that God would come to earth and be willing to empty himself of his rights and his power it was really unbelievable to the greek it was foolishness that one would come to earth and love humankind and sorrow and weep and die on a cross it was embarrassing just foolishness to them and another thing about greek philosophy was everything had to be complex you know you had to figure out something new and it had to be complex and if it was really simple then it probably wasn't true if you could figure it out then it probably wasn't true only the thinkers could really know about and if it, was, it took a thinker to figure it out, then it must have been uh, worthwhile. And then here comes these disciples, and they're preaching the gospel, and they're about as ordinary as you can get, uh, uneducated, and, and they're just coming out of the woodwork everywhere preaching this simple message, I'm determined to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. And it was not complex, and it was simple to understand. It was so uncultured, they just laughed at it, see. Nothing was more absurd than the blood of a crucified God removing sin, securing salvation, giving eternal life, Promoting holiness—nothing was more absurd than that. See, so does that mess up God's plans? I mean, if if he preaches to the Jews and it's a stumbling block, and he preaches to the Greeks and it's foolishness, then where does he go? I mean, that's everybody, right? He's come to a dead uh, dead end. I mean, there's no no other place to turn right or left. Plan won't work. Too embarrassing. Too simple. There are much more important things to focus on. My opinion, your opinion, my preference, your preference. Much more interesting things, see? Is that right? No. Verse 24. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. In spite of the fact, beloved, that most rejected, the call of salvation effectually came to some Jews and some Greeks. And they believed, and immediately Christ became to them not an embarrassment, not a stumbling block, but the power of God. Not foolish simplicity, but the wisdom of God. Jews say this can't be our Messiah. Look at him, humble, lowly, you know, byword, you know, crucified on a tree. But for the ones who did believe, Christ became to them the power of God. And isn't that right? Paul said to the Colossians in Colossians 1.25, Great illustration of this church. I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, he says, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, here's the simple message, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations but has now been manifest to his saints. What is it? It's the gospel. What was hidden before, now made clear, verse 27, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's it. Not foolishness. We proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Verse 29, for this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power, mark this, which mightily works within me. See, it's the power of God, isn't it? It's not foolishness. It's not uh, an embarrassment. Paul just says, I just labor, but the results aren't me. It's Christ working in me. And you know, to comment on the wisdom of God, there are some people who are just super super intelligent. And when you, you add up all that intelligence and you apply it to things that really matter for eternity, believers win every time, don't they? Look at first turn in your Bible to first Corinthians if you would. We've got a few minutes. First Corinthians 2.3. We haven't moved off of uh, um, this passage that we're looking at. So move over there if you would. First Corinthians 2.3, just quickly. We're gonna get here in just a couple weeks, and so I won't spend a lot of time on it. But it really illustrates because Paul's gonna obviously be in this area of unity, as we said before, all the way from chapter 1, verse 10 all the way to the end of chapter three, really into chapter four a little bit. And so Paul's not gonna let off of it because it's the main thing. And remember I told you, beloved, and this is really important, okay? As you read through the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, there's a lot of pretty bad things going on in the church. And Paul could have picked any of those to go first. But the thing he picked to go first was unity. To say the same thing, to be of the same mind, to come to the same judgment. And so he's going to repeat a lot of stuff. So if it sounds like I'm repeating a lot of stuff, it's because Paul's repeating a lot of stuff, which makes us understand that it's important to us. Okay. Well, look at 1 Corinthians 2.3. Paul says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And we read about that, didn't we, in Acts 18, that Paul was worried and even the Lord had to come to him and say, hey, don't be afraid, I've got a lot of people here who know me and uh, you're going to be okay. Just speak the clear message of the gospel. Verse 4, he said, In my message and my preaching, we're not in persuasive words of wisdom, not worldly wisdom, as we saw before, and Paul just got through saying that, didn't he? But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, verse 5, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Verse 6, yet we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. Verse seven, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. In other words, it's hidden wisdom. It's it's only revealed to those who know Christ. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Verse eight, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age had understood, for if they had understood, uh, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So in other words, the best of men, the brightest of people, they didn't know it. Why not? Because it wasn't open to them to find it, to know. (verse 9). But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear not heard, in other words, it can't be known by research. Break this down because sometimes this passage is kind of lumped in with, oh, this is what heaven looks like. Eyes not seen, ears not heard, no, it's been imagined in the hearts of men. It's not talking about heaven. Heaven, perhaps, as part of the equation, uh, as part of what God has designed. But here's the thing, okay? In context, it can't be known by research. It can't be discovered, it can't be observed and understood and experimented with and understood. Okay, that's the issue. The wisdom of God in the simple message of Christ can't be determined by just simple human research. It can't be discovered. It's not going to be observed and understood. It can't be experimented with and understood. And then it says, and which has not entered the heart of man. In other words, you can't know the wisdom of God by thinking about it and reasoning it all out. The natural man can't know any of this. You're not going to sit and ponder it and come up with this conclusion. All that God has prepared, look at the rest of it, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 10, for to us, God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God, and you have the Spirit, because you've come to faith, If you've come to faith in Christ. Verse 11, for who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, so that's the illustration, even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God which you have if you've come to faith, that's the point, okay? You know what you're thinking, nobody else knows what you're thinking, only, God, only the Spirit knows what God's thinking, and you have the Holy Spirit, that's what's good with Paul's emphasis. Verse 12, now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Why, Paul? So that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Verse 13, which things we also speak, not in words, uh, words taught by human wisdom, once again, not human wisdom, not human words, okay, not our own thoughts, not our own preferences, not whatever, okay but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Verse 14, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. The illustration there is is pretty important. It's coming off of what Paul's been saying. Man can only come to know the wisdom of God by the resident Holy Spirit that comes and resides in him at salvation. And it truly is wisdom, but the world thinks it's foolishness, and the Jews, it's a stumbling block. And there are a lot of people far more intelligent than you or me. Uh, But you know... With, with all their intelligence and everything that they would ever know, they can't come to this conclusion. And that's the wisdom of God. And they're struggling with all their you know, economics, all their psychology, and, and all their authority, and trying to figure out what's going on in the world, see. And they're evaluating, what, how is it, why is it like this? Why is it like this? And they'll never come up with a solution, but you already have it, see. Don't you? You, understood that you understand the underlying principles and the, and the problems that the world has because the Holy Spirit's given you that understanding. So with all the intellect of the world and all their psychology, all their authority, all the the stuff that they're coming up with, and you can tell them, and they're going to call you foolish. You'll never get a stage, okay? So Paul says, stay far away from worldly wisdom. It only produces faction and division. It's all going to be swept away. It's powerless to solve any of the problems that men have. And focus on the things that are eternal. Preach Christ crucified, which is the wisdom of God and the power of God. That's where the power is in the church, see? That's Paul's point. That's where the power is found. And Paul calls them back here again. Come back, okay? Come back. You were separated by all kinds of division in your mind. You've got all these thoughts that you have in opposition to what everybody else wants to do. Come back away from that. Come back, come back. Reset. Paul calls them back here again because when divisions reign, he tells us, Corinthian church, then ministry isn't happening. And when we all say the same thing and are of the same mind, then Ephesians 3.20 tells us, To him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. He can work in power. See? Now look back at chapter 1, verse 23. Paul says, We preach Christ crucified. Verse 24 says, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Why? 1 Corinthians 1 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, here's the question. Is God foolish? No. Is God weak? Of course not. So, obviously, that's not what Paul's saying. Both of those are words are used for the sake of irony. They're words from man's viewpoint. It's man's snapshot of spiritual wisdom. When a man thinks God is foolish, when a man thinks God is weak, here's the point. At that very point, God is infinitely wiser than that man, and God is infinitely mightier than that man. Okay, Let's catch this again. At the, at the point where man thinks God is foolish, and when man thinks God is weak, at that very point, God is infinitely wiser and infinitely mightier. And for believers who would never think that God is foolish or weak, you know, you, you read your Bible, and here's the great illustration, even personally, I think you can, you can resonate with this. You never think God's foolish. You never think God's weak. You don't think God's plan is foolish, okay? And you read your Bible year after year, and you know we encourage you to do that verse by verse, year after year, through the Bible. Continue to do that over and over again. And you know what you really realize? When you get done doing that for 20 years or 15 years or 30 years or whatever, you come to the end of that and you realize that you hardly know anything. Isn't that true? If you've read your Bible for a long time, that's really what you come up with, isn't it? And you get to, you know, I'm almost at the end of my Bible reading for this year. You should be too if you're reading along in the trifold that we give you. And you get to the end of that and you say, I know about, okay, I know these verses, but what about this? You know, I'm like in the cracks in between, you know, there's more and more questions. I really feel like I don't know anything. And I think you feel that way too. And even knowing what you know, you begin to see afresh that God is far beyond what you could ever imagine, see? He's calling the, calling the church back there, calling Corinth back there. He's far beyond what you can imagine. See, you're caught up with all your individual preferences or whatever, and God's far beyond what you can imagine. And this foolishness, what men think was foolish, is, is infinitely wiser. And this is what we chase after. And there are complexities in the mind of God and that are absolutely beyond humankind to even comprehend. And So uh, if, if you wanted to compare the smartest of men and the absolute supreme exhibit of the wisdom of God, the difference would be, okay, Infinite, because the difference between the total wisdom of man and the simple truth of God is infinite. Right? So if you if you compare the mightiest wisdom of man and the mightiest wisdom of God, they, the difference is infinite because the difference between the total wisdom of man and the simplest truth of God is infinite, according to Paul. That's quite the callback, isn't it? That's quite the back. That's quite the indictment against worldly wisdom and personal preference and whatever causes division in the church. Listen, it's all going to be swept away and it's powerless to do anything. God says, come back to Paul, come back. And Paul's saying here that, that the simplest thing he's ever done, the cross, the weakest exhibition of his power is infinitely beyond the greatest of man's wisdom of power. And that gets you in perspective, doesn't it? It did for me, going through this again this week. In context for the Corinthian church, Paul says, listen, whatever it is that you're so sure about, whatever opinion or preference you may have that you want to hold on to, the foolishness of God is wiser than that thought, and the weakness of God is stronger than that position. Let it go. He wants their differences to be swallowed up in Christ crucified. So there's the third principle. Man's greatest wisdom and highest thoughts are infinitely eclipsed by the most simple of God's thoughts and the smallest representation of his power. That puts that in perspective. Whatever it is, whatever the division, whatever the problem, whatever the, the clash that's causing problems for unity, understand that right there. That's the principle Paul's getting across. You know, and, it, and we've read this in First Corinthians 8.1 a couple of years ago as we were referencing something else, but it tells us knowledge makes arrogant, but love, what? Edifies. And that arrogance and pridefulness really permeated many of the things that the people of the church of Corinth did. From openly opposing each other and their leadership to bragging about immorality and taking each other to court or taking care of themselves first at the communion feast or whatever else we're going to talk about as you work your way through the book. Bottom line is, Paul says, come back away from all that. Knowledge makes arrogant, love edifies. First Corinthians one twenty-six, last verse for the day. For consider your calling, brethren, there were not many wise, according to the flesh, and not many mighty, not many noble. Paul says, look around you, would you? Go ahead, who's sitting near you? Check them out. You see your calling? It's looking at the calling of believers, of course. Look around you, brethren, look around. Not many wise, according to the flesh. You see many of what the world would consider intellectuals in the crowd or on your row? Not many Mighty? Do you see what the world would consider influential people around you? Not many noble? Do you see any of high rank? Uh, There's not a lot of them. It's just us, isn't it? Well, God had a purpose in all that, didn't he? And one of the reasons that we saw last week when we looked briefly at this verse, one of the reasons that the Lord chose the church from the humble people was to use it as a living testimony to the world that he doesn't need its rank, He doesn't need its influence, he doesn't need its wisdom to accomplish the most important thing on earth, you see? He doesn't need any of that. He didn't need it in the past, he didn't need Israel's leaders, he didn't need Israel's wise guys, he didn't need scribes from other nations, all that kind of stuff. He didn't need any of those, why? Because he only needed those who understood the simple message of the cross by faith. You see how the simplicity of the church stands as a rebuke against the complexity of the world's wisdom for all time? For all time we don't need the world's wisdom we don't need it and the paradox really proves it we who are the simplest the most foolish in the world's eyes are the wisest and we've talked about this before but during the roman empire and you know this many believers were slaves the history tells us as much as 25% of the roman population were slaves a rich man could own as many as 500 could own as many as 500 slaves an emperor usually had more than 20,000 slaves at his disposal so can you imagine, as we talked about, you know, when Paul talks about the slaves of, of uh, the emperor's household and all that, he talks about these people that he's leading the faith, right? Can you imagine what an impact this made on them because most of the church is made up of slaves and the slaves had all the answers? That's pretty tough. isn't it? That's tough on the Roman Empire when the slaves have the answers. Nobody's listening because it's just foolishness in the world's eyes. And so Christians stand for all time as this living rebuke against the so-called wise world and just to define that if we think about how the world would define a great man th- think about this a great man in your mind how would the world define a great man intelligent right very intelligent uh... you know to ma- influence through money or power you know political realm or through sports or or education or whatever so very intelligent a lot of influence three high rank a president a VIP, a, you know a ceo a senator ahead of this ahead of that a, you know whatever that's how the world bases its evaluation of greatness. And maybe you've fallen into that evaluation of greatness, too, okay? So you would like to know the greatest man that ever lived according to God? And this is a, I think this is a good way to stop, okay? You can meet him on the pages of Scripture. The greatest man who's ever lived according to the Lord, okay? And he wasn't a, he wasn't a CEO, and he wasn't a VIP of anything, and no sports, wasn't a sports guy, okay? He's not in the Hall of Fame anywhere, okay? Unless it's the Lord's Hall of Fame, and that's where he is, at the top of the list. His name's John the Baptist. No formal education, no influence through money or power. He had no worldly rank. In fact, he's kind of a strange character. His clothes were made out of camel's hair, he ate locusts and wild honey, he lived out in the rough country. And Jesus said of him in Matthew eleven eleven, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and the weak things of the world to confound the mighty according to the Lord, he's the greatest one. Don't fall into the world's evaluation of what a great person is, okay? There are a lot of people here at Berean that fly way under the radar, and they rank way up, okay? Way above the Jonathan Grubers. Way above the Jonathan Grubers. The greatest one who ever lived, right there. He didn't fit any of the world's standards, but he fit God's standard. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven was foremost to him. Foremost. Even before his own comfort, it was foremost. So Jesus compares him to everyone born before him, every prophet, every king from any age, any time period. He understood the kingdom, gave himself to it as a priority, and he he only saw a shadow of the kingdom. And that's why the next statement is this one. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Even the newest believer, even the most inexperienced Christian, can be greater in God's eyes because they know what they know is so much fuller than what John the Baptist knew. And in keeping that in the forefront and giving yourself to that and not to factions and not to divisions that drain the power from the church, you can be even greater according to the Lord than John the Baptist. But it won't because you've got your own mind about something. It won't because you're going to push your own agenda. It won't because you've got your own preference. You've got your own faction, whatever. It won't be that. You won't find your name in the greats there. You find your name in the greats when, humbly knowing the things that matter most, Christ crucified. And that's pretty amazing stuff, beloved. That's how singularly important the cross is to the church. Christ is not divided. See, Paul says, and you and I can be greater than John the Baptist when we keep the fullness of the gospel before all things in the church. That's our message today. Would you bow with me and really reflect on that for a few minutes? Father in heaven, your name is holy. It's your kingdom we desire and your will we want to see done. And if we prayed this prayer that your son taught the disciples, we would say, on earth like it's done in heaven but today we say in the church like it's done in heaven and father we see as the as paul approaches this corinthian church he doesn't thank the lord for what they're doing he thanks you for what you've done in them because they really haven't done anything thankful because all they're really concerned about is their own will and their own way not submitting to the design of the church and not coming under authority, but instead just doing their own thing and having factions and preferences and speaking things out loud. And that is not how you design the church. And so Paul brings this understanding of unity to the church and then addresses the issue of disunity and faction. And Father, we want to make sure that as we walk with you in these days, as we wait for your son's rapture, we want to be uh, those that you can say thank you to for faithfulness, for the singular message of the cross, putting aside differences and saying the same thing, coming to the same conclusion. That's maturity. And Father, we thank you that it's here. We thank you that many are just like that. We thank you for the blessing it is and and the ministry they do and how they are great in your kingdom. We know that because of their singular focus and their selflessness, and we're grateful for your work here among us. So we're just reminded anew, Father, as we read your word, we're so grateful for it that it's easy for us to fall into the evaluation of the world and what's great, and we reject all of that. And although the world will not accept uh, the wisdom that is yours, the simple wisdom, and the, just the smallest exhibition of your power, in raising Christ from the dead, uh, that doesn't mean we reject it. We hold all the more tightly to it. We know someday you'll vindicate all of that. Someday you'll send your son, will take you to church away, and seven years of terrible terror for the world, and then he will come back in his glorious opinion, in his glorious appearing, and set up a kingdom that will never end, where those who have done what you asked us to do will be recognized and shine and glorify you better than we could have had we not been as faithful to what we understand to be true. He that winneth souls is wise, Daniel said, shine like the stars of the heaven. Lord, we're so grateful that there are many who do that, that keep the singular purpose of the cross, desiring to see men and women and children come to faith and to see them uh, follow in baptism and grow up in discipleship and become uh, reproducers of this kingdom. And so, Father, we're grateful for all your word and for the time we spent together this morning. We're thankful for uh, the, the ministry of Alex amongst us and and uh, Amy and all those who are doing this ministry Jim, and downstairs our Sunday school teachers and all those who are plugged in on Wednesday and Awana and Joe and Jean and all those who are faithfully uh, keeping the message central. We're grateful for your work among us. and pray that you'll multiply it as you see fit. Help us to take care of those you give to us. And Father, we thank you for this week to come, for the joy that will be ours as part of uh, meeting with family and feasting and enjoying the blessings. Help our thoughts to turn again to our thankfulness. For the rich blessings, as Jim said, in 1 Thessalonians five eighteen, be thankful always, everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you, Lord, help us to be thankful people, but particularly this week, as our nation recalls thankfulness, help us, perhaps, to be thankful for things that really matter. Father, take us from this place, ministers of your gospel, ambassadors of you, and I pray that you'll mark our hearts for the desire, sincere desire to witness to those who come in our, in our sphere of influence. Help us not to miss those opportunities. Open our mouth, open your word, open their heart. We pray all these things, of course, in the name of your Son, whom we long to see and that we desire above all things. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen.